truth. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder, the soul and the spirit, and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. All scriptures God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Before we begin our study of God's Word, let's make sure we're ready to study. A few moments of silent prayer for confession, 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, so that we can study under the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, again we come to you in gratitude for our salvation, that it is not based on anything we do, not based on who and what we are, but based exclusively on who you are and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Therefore, salvation has nothing to do with human merit, but everything to do with simply accepting a free gift, trusting Christ as our Savior. Father, this has been the plan throughout human history in order to demonstrate your righteousness, your justice, and your love, and their compatibility with one another in relation to the angelic conflict. Therefore, you have demarcated different periods and ages in human history called dispensations for the manifestation of your plan and for the ultimate glorification of yourself. And fathers, we continue our study of this subject. Pray that you would help us to understand these things, that we may see how it relates to our own spiritual life and the unique spiritual life which we have in this age. We pray this that we would be challenged by the things that we study tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. We are continuing our study of God's plan for the ages, covenants and dispensations We are in the seventh lesson. Uh, Hopefully tonight we will get through the dispensation of human government, and I don't think we will finish the Abrahamic covenant. There's no chance we'll even get into that dispensation, I don't believe. We started off with a definition of dispensations, four parts. A dispensation is a distinct and identifiable administration in the development of God's plan and purposes for human history. The word dispensation comes from the Greek word oikonomos, which emphasizes the administration aspect. That aspect, that word, does not particularly emphasize a time period. That is brought in by a closely connected but not interchangeable word, age, or the Greek word ion, which brings in that time period. Third part of the the, uh, definition God manages the entirety of human history as a household, moving humanity through sequential stages of his administration, determined by the level of revelation he has provided up to that time in history. So a dispensation is directly related to a certain amount of information or revelation. God, therefore, when there is a dispensational change, there is a a collateral information change. And that is almost always given through a covenant. It is a, the covenant, therefore, is God's means of moving history, giving new information, new requirements, new specifications to a specific, specific group of people. That brings the fourth point. Each administrative period is characterized by Revelation that specifies responsibilities, 
a test in relation to those responsibilities, there is always a failure to pass the test on man's part and God's gracious provision of a solution when that failure occurs. So history always emphasizes human inability and God's grace to provide everything for man so that man responds simply by faith or trust in Christ alone, never on the basis of works. We also brought in the idea of the angelic conflict, that there was a prehistoric revolt against God led by uh, Lucifer, who is the highest of all the angels, the most intelligent, most brilliant of all the angels. He led a revolt of approximately a third of the angels, according to Revelation, against God. And when God pronounced a guilty verdict, sentenced them to eternity in the lake of fire, apparently there was a uh, cry of appeal on their part that God was not fair, He was not just, that somehow how could a righteous and loving God send His creatures to eternity in the lake of fire when He hasn't even given them a chance to prove what they can do. So God then instituted human history as an experiment. Experiment means... Uh, something that is done to demonstrate a known truth. And so human history is going to demonstrate that God is indeed uh, righteous and just and that his love is compatible with his justice and that, that the creature is incapable of being able to function as God. A creature must therefore be completely oriented to the authority of God, operate on the basis of humility and complete devotion to God. So, in each age, there are factors that relate to demonstrating these principles in terms of the angelic conflict. Now, the way to understand this, and you just have to get this in your head, and I'm going to beat this into your head over and over again, week after week, until you dream about this chart, on the covenants. starts off with the Gentile covenants. There are three Gentile covenants. Basically, there, I think there is really only one covenant. I think it's interesting that each time God uh, comes to uh, Noah, comes to Moses, he says, I'm going to establish my covenant with you. I think in some way they're all manifestations of the same original creation covenant, which we call the Edenic covenant. It is the covenant that God makes in Genesis 1:27 to 28. Now, the word covenant is not used there. So why are we using that word? Because in Hosea, it states that Adam broke God's covenant. So even though the word covenant is not used in Genesis 1, to 28, the language that is used there is clearly covenantal, outlining man as God's representative on the earth. His image and likeness refer to not only who man is in terms of his internal makeup, but that that internal makeup, the immaterial part of man, his soul and his spirit, comprise the image of God, but it is given because it is functional. He is made a certain way in order to function in a certain task. He is therefore created as a reflection, a shadow image of God in his immaterial makeup for the purpose of serving as the vicegerent of God over creation. He is God's representative to all of creation, and he is to rule, subdue uh, over the earth. But he fails to fulfill the obligations. Specifically, he violates the prohibition of eating the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. 
and there is the fall. The fall calls for a modification of the original creation covenant or Edenic covenant, and that we call the Adamic covenant outlined under the curses. The curse, the serpent is cursed, the woman's womb is cursed, the woman's relationship to her husband is cursed, the husband's relationship to the woman is cursed, and the husband's uh, role and function towards the creation is cursed. So and we outlined that last time, went through a detailed comparison of the uh, original mandates in the Edenic covenant, and we saw that point by point each aspect of Genesis 3:14 through 19 reflects a modification of that original covenant because of sin. So man is now in an environment that is no longer cooperative but is hostile and antagonistic. Man once again fails to fulfill the mandate and trust God and God judges the earth through a worldwide flood and modifies the covenant even further in the Noahic covenant of Genesis 9, 1 through 7. This is the structure of the first 11 chapters of Genesis, the Edenic covenant, Adamic covenant, and Noahic covenant. And you just can think your way through very easily that it's creation, fall, flood, and you've got the first 11 chapters. Then you think in terms of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and you've just outlined the entire book of Genesis. See how easy that was? Seven points, creation, fall, flood, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. But the first part covers the Gentile covenants and the Noahic covenant, which we were studying last time, is still in effect. It has not been uh, abrogated. It is still in effect in terms of all of its provisions. And I will review the seven provisions of the Noahic covenant in a minute. This begins the dispensations. The first period of the, the first age is the age of the Gentiles from the creation up to uh, the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The original Edenic covenant begins the first dispensation of human perfection. That takes place in the Garden of Eden up to the fall. At the time of the fall, the Adamic covenant changes the revelation, changes the stipulation, adds new information because man's condition has changed because of his failure at the uh, tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. So the Adamic covenant represents this new condition, this new environment that man finds himself in, and that begins a new dispensation called the uh, uh, dispensation of human conscience. That ends because man fails. He cannot uh, govern himself. He is unable on, unable on his own to uh, police himself, to provide order in his society, there is a complete failure. He is attacked by, in the terms of the angelic conflict through the infiltration of the uh, sons of God, which are demons, fallen angels in the Old Testament who take uh, human wives for the purpose of polluting the human genetic system so that the ultimate goal is to prevent a Messiah coming who is the seed of the woman that is true humanity. So as a result of the infiltration of the sons of God, demonic infiltration of the human race and the uh, pollution of the genetic, uh, genetic stream, genetic pool, we have the uh, flood, the universal flood, judgment on the earth. Eight people survived, Noah, his three sons, and all of their wives. 
God modifies again the covenant, the original covenant, and with a new covenant, the Noahic covenant, and that institutes the dispensation of civil government. Dispensation of civil government. So just think in terms of three covenants, Edenic, Adamic, Noahic, three dispensations, perfect environment, human conscience, and civil government. Then you have that first age, the age of the Gentiles. Stipulations or provisions of the Noahic covenant. First of all, God says to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. He told Adam and the woman to do that before the fall. Uh, They were to continue that after the fall. But but because of the curse, the woman's womb was cursed, their relationship was cursed, and there would be difficulty in fulfilling the mandate. Secondly, the fear of you will be, that is, fear of you, mankind, will be upon all the animals. Prior to the fall, there was no fear, there was no antagonism, there was no hostility between the animal kingdom and mankind. In the age from, of human conscience, there apparently was no fear between man and the animals. Um, man was not a meat eater at that time. So this is related to the third provision, which is that there's a change in the diet. Under the original Adamic, or excuse me, under the original Edenic covenant, God said, I made all of the, um, all the vegetation for food for mankind. With the Adamic covenant, that's restricted to the um, uh, shrubs of the field. Then you have a further change at the Noahic covenant, the addition of meat. And so Ad, uh, Noah is basically told, if it moves, eat it. Fourth, the only limitation is don't eat or drink blood because blood was a symbol, a representation of the soul and the presence of life and the sanctity of life. So this is not a prohibition against eating a good rare steak, but the prohibition against drinking blood. The fifth provision is capital punishment. This is not only authorized, but it is mandated. And this is what becomes the basis for Civil government, it is the most extreme application of civil government. Therefore, everything else falls under that. If man is delegated this responsibility, then all other aspects of the judiciary are also delegated. That's why it's called the age, the dispensation this begins is called the dispensation of civil government. Sixth, there is a promise of no more universal flood. And... Seventh, the token is a rainbow. So as long as you see the rainbow, you should be reminded of three things. You should be reminded that it's, God is not going to judge the earth by water again. The capital punishment is still authorized and mandated, and that you are to eat meat. As well as a fourth aspect, we are to continue to be fruitful and multiply, despite the fact that there are the... Um, the whiners out there and those who run around in fear thinking that we're going to overpopulate the planet. It's interesting, last time I used the analogy of the Comanche Indians on the high plains of Texas, and afterwards I was talking to Bryce, and Bryce just got back from a vacation where he was at uh, Mesa Verde, and the park, he was telling me the park rangers there said the same thing about the Anasazi Indians uh, that, that lived in the cave dwellings there, and built the cliff houses and everything, that the reason they moved from the top down into the caves was because they had basically trashed the uh, area above ground, and they only lasted about six mu- uh, six, 60 years 
in the uh, caves, and then they had pretty much wiped them out ecologically. And he, the park ranger admitted that it wasn't politically correct, but that the uh, Indians were, in fact, not very ecologically uh, 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 sound. So uh, I've been teaching that for 20 years, so it's about time somebody came, came along and got, got with it. See, doctrine eventually has its way because it's reality. Now, that brings us down to where we, to the conclusion from last time, and we're going to look at the dispensation of human government or civil government in Genesis, um, basically Genesis chapter 9 through Genesis chapter 11. We will cover this under eight subpoints. Eight subpoints. The central person, the name of the dispensation, the responsibility of the dispensation, the test in this dispensation, human failure in the dispensation, and the divine judgment, and God's grace, and then highlighting the volitional issue. So those will be the eight categories. You can write those down in your notes and to make sure you fill in all the blanks. The central person is Noah. The central person is Noah because he is the one with whom God makes the covenant which initiates this dispensation. There will be a new way God administers uh, his rule on the planet, and that is by delegating judicial authority to man. This, of course, is outlined in the covenant. The name for this dispensation comes from the fact that judicial authority is, for the first time, delegated to man and it establishes human government. Now, it doesn't establish nations yet. That comes as a part of the failure in the midst of this dispensation, which is some uh, five or six hundred years subsequent to the establishment of the covenant. The covenant simply establishes human government, and it's not till the failure at the Tower of Babel and the uh, dispersion of mankind by virtue of scattering the languages that uh, human government or, or independent nations is established. So this just establishes the principle of human or civil government. And the responsibility of man is to fulfill the Noahic covenant, which is specifically to do what? To multiply, scatter, and fill the earth. Not to, not to uh, gather together in cities and, in, and stay together in one place, but to scatter out and to fill the earth. Why? Because that's a function of the original mandate where man was to subdue the earth. He was to subdue the earth and rule over the creature, rule over all the creatures. Now, that's been affected, of course, by the curse, and he's never going to fulfill that again in the, until Jesus Christ comes back as the second Adam and fulfills that in the millennial kingdom. But nevertheless, the human race still has an obligation to rule the planet, not in a hostile, destructive, irresponsible way, but in a responsible manner. So he has a responsibility to scatter and fill the earth, and the test then is to is really threefold. There's a threefold test. The first aspect is in relation to human government, man is to rule justly. Man is to rule justly. Now, I think this broke down very early in this dispensation because when we get back in a study of, uh, of ancient history and we go back in the ancient civilizations of Egypt, Mesopotamia, the Hittite uh, uh, Empire, 
we find that as we go back into the very mists of time, when there's very little uh, historical record, what we do find is that these civilizations had incredibly strong rulers. They are the kind of rulers that would make the tyrants of the 20th century uh, pale in comparison. The strong rulership of the of the pharaohs and the slave system in Egypt because Pharaoh was viewed as God. And I think this is because that when these the men came off the ark, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, they still knew and had access to uh, antediluvian, pre-flood engineering skills and technology, and they brought with them that knowledge. It took three or four generations before that knowledge uh, was lost and diluted. Even to this day, we don't know how, we don't understand the technology that was used to build the Great Pyramids. There are many other things that took place in the ancient world we don't know anything about. We don't know what kind of technology they had. It was a different kind of technology from what we have today, but it was clearly advanced. Uh, And I think that those men, those first two or three generations from uh, Noah, were viewed by subsequent generations almost as gods, as mighty men, because they knew so much, they, were, uh, they lived lengthy, uh, lengthy lives, they, lived, they, they were still living two or three hundred years, whereas uh, their great-great-grandchildren were dying before they did. So by uh, the fourth, fifth generations from the flood, you have uh, the lifespan reduced to about 150 years, but... The men who, who survived uh, the flood, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, their sons and their grandsons were still living in excess of 200, 250, 300 years. You can plot the decline in their, in their uh, death rate in Genesis chapter 11, and it's a clear exponential de- decay curve, which indicates that, that, mo- that it's, those numbers are accurate, that Moses didn't take out his uh, slide rule and try to calculate exactly what the decay rate would be and then plot it out so that it fit a perfect graph. But that's the way it, that's the way it functioned. So those people were viewed as, as gods, almost as gods, as it were, and um, uh, they did not rule justly. They established tyrannies. So there's a violation and breakdown of human government. You see that exemplified in Nimrod, Genesis 10:8. Now Cush became the father of Nimrod, who became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, Genesis 10:9 states. And the Hebrew preposition there would best be translated, he was a mighty hunter against the Lord. So he is one who has established himself in antagonism to the Lord and establishes his own kingdom in Babel. And from that he builds a, a power base, and in Genesis 11, 1 down through 9, we have the story of the Tower of Babel. So the first aspect of the test is to rule justly, and they rule uh, from an authority base and rule unjustly. Secondly, manage to disperse and fill the earth, and instead of dispersing and filling the earth, they stay together and gather together in one place in order to uh, establish uh, a, a city against God. And so the third point is that man tries to stay a single unit, a singular government, a one-world society in antagonism to God. That's Genesis 11 and following. Now we read in verse 1, The whole earth 
use the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east, that is, from uh, Ararat, where the ark landed, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. This would be down in the uh, Fertile Crescent near the uh, what is present uh, Iraq, down near Kuwait, north of there in that region. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone. They used tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city. Notice it's for us. It's not for God. And a tower whose top will reach into heaven. Let us make for ourselves a name. Interesting wordplay in the Hebrew here because they want to make a name for themselves and later God is referred to as the God of the name. So you see this interplay and this contrast that they're clearly setting themselves up in antagonism to God which is indicative of all um, human culture that is based on paganism and rejects God. It elevates itself as the ultimate final authority in place of God. Lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth, in verse 4. So you see, they, they do this in order to be scattered, yet God told them to scatter and fill the earth. So the Lord comes down, in verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They all have the same language. This is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. So, verse 7, let us go down there and confuse the language that they may not understand one another's speech. So human language, all the diversity of human language comes about as a result of that curse and failure. So in terms of the failure, the failure is the Tower of Babel, which is the first attempt at a United Nations and every attempt at internationalism and globalism and building a global uh, global society is always antagonistic to the scriptures and has a religious base, whether it's overt or not, whether you see it or not, is not the issue. The issue is that this is all designed ultimately as a human attempt to subvert what God did at the Tower of Babel. It's interesting with, uh, there you had the confusion of language and yet today you have, especially with computers, you have moves back towards a universal language that can uh, unite mankind and is fundamental to building this entire global uh, global society we hear so much about. The divine judgment is the scattering of the people through the multiplication of languages. And then the grace is that God is going to preserve a remnant out of this through the descendants of Shem through whom he will work. So he judges mankind, but he is going to Preserve a remnant through the descendants of Nahor and Terah, specifically Abraham and the Jews. In relation to the angelic conflict, we see that the conflict continues to rage as part of the background to this because it is during this time period. If you read the ancient mythologies, you go to the Babylonian uh, Enuma Elish, which is the creation account, you read the uh, Gilgamesh epic, which is the Babylonian uh, version of the uh, flood account. You read some of the other accounts in the, in the other ancient civilizations. And it is during this time period that they move from uh, monotheism to polytheism. There's a fascinating work that I read when I was in seminary, written by a, a, a Jesuit sociologist, anthropologist, by the name of, uh, 
name escapes me, I think it was Schwartz, uh, no, Schmidt, Wilhelm Schmidt. He was a French uh, Jesuit sociologist in the early part of the 20th century. And he did a six-volume work in the, in the French, which was uh, abridged and translated into English in one volume. And he goes through every single known civilization known to man in the 1920s. He deals with the Polynesian cultures. He deals with every Asian culture, all the various African cultures from the south to the north, uh, Central Asian highlands, Indian cultures. He deals with every known culture, and he does a complete historical workup of the development of their religious systems. And what he shows is that is just the opposite of what you were taught in school. You were taught that religion evolved, and it started off with many gods and evolved towards monotheism, and that monotheism was the highest expression of human religion. And I remember hearing that kind of garbage when I was in Western Civ in uh, college, and that uh, we, we, we would study uh, Akhenaten, the uh, pharaoh of Egypt, from about the uh, 1300 uh, B.C., that he worshipped the sun god and eliminated all the other Egyptian gods, so he was the first monotheist, and that was, according to liberal dating, a hundred years before Moses. So how could Moses have been a monotheist? It's all an attack on the Bible, and it's all wrong. It's based on the application of evolutionary presuppositions on the history of religion. As I keep telling you this, history is one of the most devastating vehicles for teaching evolution. It's much worse than what you'll find in the biology or geology classroom. But what Schmidt developed is the idea that, that instead of going from many gods to one god, all these civilizations could trace back ultimately to the worship of one god. For example, even in the Canaanite culture where you have a, a, just a plethora of uh, false gods from Baal and Anad and Astarte and all the other gods that they all go back to Ale, who's the counterpart of uh, Saturn or Uranus in the Greek and Roman uh, mythology. And that would be the one God. And then over time, you had it, monotheism break down into polytheism. And that took place during this early period of history subsequent to the fall. And this is where you incorporate ideas in your, all these mythologies all over the world have uh, various uh, legends where the gods came down and cohabited with uh, human women and produced an offspring that was half God and half man. And you see that in the legend of Hercules and many others in the Greek, but you see it throughout the ancient world. And this is reminiscent not only of the sons of God infiltration in Genesis 6, but also the idea that uh, it's all blended and mixed together, the idea that the Ham, Shem, and Japheth were so great and powerful that they were like gods. So you see all this jumbled together, and it was utilized during this, uh, ant this uh, post-Diluvian civilization to generate false or substitute religious systems in order to do away with the worship of God. Now, we know from Scripture that idolatry is not just something man invented, and it's not something that is, is purely neutral, but has its root in demonism. So wherever you find a false religious system, 
that emphasizes, especially that emphasizes idolatry, it is rooted in demonism. We get, to understand this, we look at one passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 19 through 21. There Paul is dealing with the problem of food or meat that's been sacrificed to idols and the whole issue there of whether or not to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols, and that's another subject. All I want to emphasize here is the point that he makes in verse 20. Reading from verse 19 to get the context, Paul states, What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? In other words, is an idol really something? Is there something there? Is it just wood or stone? He says, No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons. Notice how he shifted from idols to demons. That there is a demonic reality behind the false religions. They sacrifice to demons and not to God, and I do not want you to become sharers in demons. So that's the point, is that all of these false religious systems, whether they are worshiping the great spirit of the uh, American, Native American Indian, or whether it's uh, Hinduism or some sort of animism, polytheism in the heart of Africa or South America, it's all demonic. It has its roots in demonism, and that's one reason that... uh, that God brought such a judgment against the Native Americans that were inhabiting the North American continent was because they were just immersed in some of the most horrific demonism that you can imagine. They were into all kinds of uh, uh, necromancy, and they were into cannibalism, and they were drinking blood, and they were involved in all sorts of activities that were pure demonism. And so whenever any culture gets that uh, immersed in degeneracy and demonic degeneracy, then God always judges them harshly. So the point that I'm making here is that what happens in terms of the angelic conflict during the dispensation of civil government is that there is another infiltration of demonic influence, which is the influence of ideas, specifically idolatry, and all of these systems, the ancient Egyptian religions, the Babylonian religious systems, which are quite intricate, the Canaanite religious systems, the Hittite religious systems, all are developed and worked out during this time period. They are they are full, full-blown by the time we come to Abraham, who is born a worshiper of the sun and moon gods. That was his cultural background until he uh, put his faith and trust in God alone. So we see this, this is the aspect of the angelic conflict here. On the one side is the assault on the truth and the infiltration of polytheistic, pantheistic, and idolatrous religions. Now another aspect takes place in terms of how Satan is attacking the Old Testament saints. And for that, I want you to turn to Job. To just take a very brief look at Job as a representation of what is going on in terms of evidence testing in the Old Testament. You see, remember that human history is the outworking of Satan's appeal of the verdict of God in eternity past. So in eternity past, God gave a verdict of guilty. Satan challenged that and argued for an appeal. 
that appeal has worked out in human history. So what's happening with all of the great uh, faith heroes in the Old Testament is that they are giving evidence by their lives of the grace of God and demonstrating the integrity of God in terms of His righteousness and justice and its compatibility with God's love expressed through His grace. And we get a picture of this in Job chapter 1, starting in verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And here again, we see that the term sons of God, Beneha Elohim, is a technical description of angels, not just demons, but of all of the angels. They're called the sons of God, and Satan is one of them. And so there is this periodic convocation in heaven where all the uh, angels, fallen and holy, gather together before God. And the Lord challenges Satan here. He says, where where have you been? In verse 7, And Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. This reminds us of 1 Peter chapter 5, that Satan goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. This is a very graphic image of his... uh, the fact that he is a predator, and we are the victims. We are the targets. Verse 8, the Lord said to Satan, Notice how the Lord is the one who is bringing out the evidence. It is not Satan who initiates this. It is the Lord. He says, Have you thought about Job? So he's going to focus it on Job, who has achieved spiritual maturity in his life, and therefore is at that point where he can endure evidence testing. Now, we have studied this previously in our study of James, how that God is the one who utilizes testing in order to demonstrate or validate our spiritual growth. We look at passages like James chapter 1, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And that's the word uh, dokemion in the Greek, which means to uh, evaluate something for the purpose of approval. It is the same word. The verb form of that is used at the judgment seat of Christ that we are judged or evaluated for rewards. And it is not an evaluation for criticism or condemnation, but is an evaluation for the purpose of reward and the purpose of blessing. So the focus of that, uh, this kind of testing is not to show where we're weak, but to show where we're strong and where we've grown spiritually and to give us an opportunity to strengthen that spiritual, that spiritual life. So the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there's no one like him on the earth. A blameless and upright man. There he brings in the concepts of integrity and righteousness, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Hast thou not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? And you've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse thee to thy face. In other words, Satan brings in the concept of suffering here as part of the uh, angelic conflict and the testing here. And he's basically saying to God, The only reason Job is so obedient to you, and the only reason Job worships you is because you've blessed him. 
You know, you give everybody, you make somebody the richest guy in the world, and you give him an abundance of, of, of herd, you give him wonderful children, you give him all the wealth that he can imagine and hope for, of course he's going to worship you, but you just take it all away and uh, make him miserable, and he will curse you to your face. So this is the test to... As evidence, Job is going to uh, lose everything so that he can demonstrate that he will continue to trust God, as he states later in the book, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And so Job is going to demonstrate that his trust in God, his worship of God, is not related to God's blessing on Job. And that is one of the things that is emphasized throughout The Old Testament is the evidence testing of these Old Testament saints in relation to the angelic conflict. I want you to turn to one other passage to see this, this element in Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah is the uh, second to last book in the Old Testament. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Zechariah chapter 3. We see another picture into the heavens of what's going on in terms of the angelic conflict dimension of evidence testing. Zechariah 3.1 Then he showed me Joshua the high priest. He is um, talking about God. Me is talking about Zechariah in this vision. He sees Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, which is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So here we see Satan, Shatan, the accuser, uh, fulfilling his role in accusation against the believer that he has no right to stand before God. And the Lord said to Satan, uh, the Lord rebuke you. Notice here is an implied trinity. The Lord, if it's singular, would be saying, I rebuke you. But what you have here is the Lord, this is the angel of the Lord, uh, says the Lord, referring to God the Father, rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? So we see a picture. Zechariah represents the grace, the believer who is saved by grace from eternal condemnation. Verse 3, now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments. That is a representation of every human being who is born in sin. And standing before the angel, and he spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, remove the, the and the he here is uh, Lord Jesus Christ. He said to those who are standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And said to him, that is to Satan, See, I have taken your iniquity, or says to him, that is to Zechariah, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. And this is a picture of how we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ at salvation. It is the doctrine of imputation. And this exemplifies the grace of God because the imputation of righteousness brings into play all of the elements of the integrity of God. Remember, the integrity of God is composed of Three elements, three attributes of God, the righteousness of God, which represents the standard of God's character. The justice of God represents the application of that standard to mankind. 
Now, man is minus R, relative righteousness, that even in our very best, it is still filthy rags in the sight of God. So when God looks down at man, the righteousness of God rejects the relative righteousness of man. Therefore, the justice of God must curse man, because what the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns. But when we are saved... Because of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, when we put our faith and trust in Christ alone, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ is credited to our account so that when God looks at us, He is no longer looking at us as a sinner. He is looking at us in terms of our possession of righteousness. So it doesn't matter what we do or don't do. Our works are clearly no longer the issue in terms of salvation. That doesn't mean you have a license to sin. That simply means that it is not on the basis of our goodness or lack of it that God relates to us, but exclusively on the basis of this imputation of righteousness. This is provided because of the love of God, which is the motivation of His, uh, of His integrity. The love of God is, it is because of the love of God that God sent His Son to die on the cross for our sins. So that because of that, the blessing of God is now free to flow to mankind. What the righteousness of God approves, because it sees perfect righteousness here, the justice of God can now bless. And this begins with salvation blessing and then goes on to Christian life, uh, Christian life blessing. And this is the picture that we have here even in the Old Testament. So what God is demonstrating here through uh, to Zechariah. To Joshua the high priest is that the righteousness and justice of God are compatible with his love and through the expression of grace, God provides the solution to the sin problem and this is evidence that Satan's whole charge is uh, empty and meaningless. So that is the way the Old Testament fits in or the angelic conflict fits into the dispensation of human government. There is a complete failure and breakdown because of what happened at the Tower of Babel. So rather than working through the entire human race, God is now going to narrow His focus and His grace is going to operate through one man and his descendants. And this is through the Abrahamic covenant and God's call of Abraham. So let's go back, remind ourselves of where we are. Gentile covenants, there are three. There's the Edenic covenant, the Adamic covenant, and the Noahic Covenant, which continues and is applicable to everyone. Jew and Gentile alike are both responsible for all the provisions in the Noahic Covenant. And then at this point, God introduces the first unconditional Jewish Covenant. The first unconditional Jewish Covenant. There are five Jewish Covenants. The first is the Abrahamic Covenant, which is first introduced in a summary fashion in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. There are three components, as we will see, to the Abrahamic covenant, three aspects, a promise of land, a promise of descendants, seed, 
uh, refers both to the nation and to the Lord Jesus Christ and a promise of blessing not only to the Jews but to all nations. Each one of these components is further developed in the subsequent covenants of the Old Testament. The land promise is developed in the real estate covenant of Deuteronomy 30. The seed provision is further specified and developed in the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel 7. And the blessing aspect is developed in the new covenant of Jeremiah 31. So in order to understand the real estate covenant, Davidic covenant, new covenant, you have to understand the Abrahamic covenant because they are just, as it were, further explanations or developments of that primary covenant. So just as you have one covenant for the Gentiles modified twice, you have one covenant for the Jews with with, uh, uh, further addendums and specifications in three more covenants. So let's look at the Abrahamic covenant. Abrahamic covenant is going to begin a new dispensation called the dispensation of promise or the dispensation of the patriarchs. There will be seven basic subpoints to cover under the Abrahamic covenant and the dispensation of the of the patriarchs. We will look at scripture, look at the persons involved in the covenant, the provisions of that covenant which are quite extensive and categorizing the provisions, the basic motifs or themes of the Abrahamic covenant, uh, God's confirmation of the Abrahamic covenant to subsequent generations, and the present status of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, this is crucial to being able to understand prophecy. If you don't get this down, you can never understand the prophetic portions of Scripture. It's just impossible. And failure to deal consistently or to interpret consistently all aspects of the Abrahamic covenant is what has led to such a vast division among uh, Christians in terms of interpreting prophecy. While on the one hand, everybody might, uh, conservatives, let me put it that way, might affirm that they interpret the Bible literally, what happens is that you have two different groups of uh, people. You can divide all Christians all theology into two categories. There are those who hold to a replacement theology and those who hold to a non-replacement theology. Replacement theology is a broader term than covenant theology. What I mean by replacement theology is these systems all see that the church replaces Israel in the plan of God. That the church replaces Israel in the plan of God so that the literal promises to Israel are spiritualized and applied to the church. And this includes Roman Catholic theology, Lutheran theology, Wesleyan theology that would include Methodist and, and many Pentecostals and holiness churches as well as your reformed, uh, your reformed churches such as co- uh, Congregationalists, Presbyterians, and all of your modern covenant theologies. So all of these groups, that's virtually everybody out except for dispensationalists. 
dispensationalism is the only theological system that consistently interprets the Scripture so that the literal promises to Israel are eventually to be literally fulfilled to Israel. The church does not replace Israel. Israel is temporarily uh, set aside in the plan of God, and God is going to utilize the church for a, a separate purpose, but that God will restore His plan to Israel fulfill and ultimately fulfill all of His Old Testament promises to Israel literally. Just as He partially fulfilled them literally at the beginning, He will ultimately fulfill them literally. So this is why dispensationalism is unique. And dispensationalism is not something that simply affects prophecy and the interpretation of these covenants. But if you properly understand dispensationalism, it affects to some level every single branch of theology. It affects theology proper and our understanding of God because it affects His faithfulness to His covenants and that He fulfills them literally and doesn't shift in midstream to a spiritual application. It affects Christology because we see the role of Jesus Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords and as that He is the husband of the church and He is the Davidic King of Israel, two different roles. We see how it affects pneumatology because there is a distinct role of the Holy Spirit in the church age that is unique and is distinct from all other uh, time periods. We see that that, therefore, will affect the spiritual life, so that the spiritual life in the church age, principles of sanctification, are different. There is a dispensational view of the spiritual life that is completely different from all of these other views. See, what happens in replacement theology, because the church replaces Israel, then Israel becomes the... Uh, the antecedent and the model for church age spirituality, and that brings in the Mosaic Law. And as a result of that, in all of these systems, spirituality is based on ritual plus uh, morality. In every branch of Christianity other than dispensationalism, and just to warn you, not all dispensationalists really understand what I'm teaching you now. Uh, but in all these other systems, spirituality is based on a combination of ritual plus morality. But in dispensationalism, and it really became clear by the time of Lewis Berry Schaefer and um, C.I. Schofield and a few others, by the end of the 19th century, they began to flesh out the unique role of God the Holy Spirit in terms of the filling of the Holy Spirit as a unique feature of the church age. And that it was on the basis of the filling of the Holy Spirit, uh, as per Galatians 3.3, 3, having begun by the Spirit or yet you now being uh, matured or completed by the flesh, uh, and linked with Galatians 5.16, walk by means of the Spirit, that the church age as a unique spiritual life based on the believer's relationship to God the Holy Spirit. And very, very few people understand that. And this is one reason and one of the very subtle and difficult things that underlies the Lordship Salvation controversy. Because Lordship Salvation has its source in Reformed theology. 
and some of the same issues that affect the interpretation of reform passages also affect some of these salvation passages. And it, if you believe in lordship salvation, if you hold a lordship salvation, you I don't care how much you protest to the contrary, you cannot be a consistent dispensationalist. And there are a few nationally known people who are trying to hold to both, but they are wrong. You cannot hold to any form of Reformed theology and be a consistent dispensationalism because this ultimately is going to attack and destroy grace and only dispensationalism has a biblical understanding of grace and a biblical understanding of the spiritual life of the church age. So this is why it is so important to properly understand and interpret the Abrahamic covenant on the basis of a consistent literal interpretation so that all aspects and facets of the Abrahamic covenant are interpreted consistently and literally. It begins, first, our first passage is in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. So Abram is going to be shown a land, a specific piece of real estate, a concrete geographical uh, piece of real estate. It is not heaven. At this point, it is literal. So therefore, you can't come along later on and say, well, the Jews blew it, so now the land refers to heaven. See, that's, that's a, you're shifting your hermeneutic in midstream. If it's literal here, it has to be literal then. So we have a literal piece of real estate that God is going to show uh, Abram. He's going to take him there. In verse 2, I will make you a great nation. This is the second aspect of this promise that he is going to make from him a, a great nation. And he says, I will bless you and make your name great. That is, your reputation will go before you throughout all the generations. I will make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And incidentally, this is not an indicative or a result clause that as a result of making your name great, you will be a blessing. It is a command. You go and be a blessing, Abram. It is not a result. And I will bless those who bless you, God says. And the one who curses you, I will curse. There's two different words for curse there in the Hebrew. The first word for curse means to treat lightly to treat lightly or with disrespect. And ultimately that has its fulfillment in the one who treats the cross lightly or with disrespect. You I will curse, and that is a strong word for divine judgment. So anyone who comes along and treats Israel lightly as if they really don't matter, then God is going to judge them harshly. That is what that means in the original. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Notice, Abram, in you, I'm making a covenant with you, but as a result of the covenant that I'm making with you, all the other nations, all the other families on the earth are going to be blessed. It's not just restricted to you as a covenant partner, but the, the benefit from this, the tangential effect of my covenant with you is that all families on the whole earth are going to be blessed. Now, the next statement of the covenant comes in Genesis 12, verse 7, where the Lord appears to Abram and says, To your descendants I will give 
what? This land. He's talking about a specific piece of real estate. I will give this land. So he built, he, that is Abram, built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. The next statement is Genesis 13, 14 through 17. This is when Abram and Lot separate. Abram's very gracious. He says to his nephew Lot, Go take a look at the land all around you and you pick out whatever piece of real estate you want and that will be yours. You go live there and uh, I will take whatever is left. But I'm going to give you the pick and you can take the very best if you want. And so Lot took off for the, the, the cities along the uh, Dead Sea. Of course, it wasn't the Dead Sea then. The cities of the plain where it, it was very beautiful. So the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, notice, Lot takes off because he thinks he's going to get the land. God's got another plan. God's got another plan because it's all going to be Abram's. He says, now lift up your eyes. It doesn't matter what Lot just took off with. Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, north and south, east and west. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and your descendants forever. And that includes the land that Lot took. It's all going to be yours. Notice. It is a specific piece of physical, geographical real estate that is going to belong to Abraham. Verse 16, And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, innumerable, so that if anyone could number the dust of the earth, which of course they can't, then your descendants can also be numbered. And of course, Abram's descendants are not just the Jews, but they also include the descendants of Ishmael, and the descendants of Esau and many of the Arab tribes are also descended from Abraham. But that doesn't matter because it's only the ones who are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that are the Israel, the true Israel, not those who are just descendants of Abraham. And that's an important point I'll come back to because a lot of people think that because Galatians says that we're of the seed of Abraham that that makes the church the spiritual Israel. But it doesn't. You're not Israel unless you're a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not just Abraham. Because the Ishmaelites, the Esau, the Edomites, the Midianites are all descended. All the Arabs are descended from Abraham as well, except for those of the 13 tribes descended from Yachtan. So Genesis 13 and 16, innumerable is the dust of the earth. Then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land. It's physical through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. And we will stop there and come back next time because there are two more very important passages on the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 that are crucial for understanding its, uh, its unique place in history. And we just don't have time, so we'll come back and start here next Wednesday night with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You that Your grace has worked throughout history and that through Abraham You have blessed all nations. Ultimately, that's fulfilled by the work of Christ on the cross who, where He who knew no sin was made sin for us that the righteousness of God might be found in us. And Father, we know that our salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. We pray that if there's anyone here that is unsure of their salvation, that they would they would make that sure now by simply putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ because they know that it is not of works that they have done,
but totally based on your work and your love. Father, we pray that you would help us to further understand and remember the things we studied, that we can have a greater appreciation for your work in history and what you are doing in our lives through the unique spiritual life you have given us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.